It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Hello, it's Manveen here. We thought you might enjoy a weekend treat with another of the podcasts from The Stable here at The Times. And this one is a humdinger. Let me introduce you to Past Imperfect, a podcast that asks... Can early trauma shape future success? Throughout the series, Times columnists Rachel Sylvester and Alice Thompson talk to extraordinary people about traumatic events in their early life and the effect they've had on their identities, their careers and their drive to succeed. This week, Great British Bake Off star Nadia Hussain describes the impact of winning the show back in 2015 and how the abuse that she suffered as a child has inspired her to be a force for change. You're listening to Past Imperfect. Please be advised that in this episode, there are descriptive discussions about suicide, racism and sexual abuse. Hello and welcome to Past Imperfect. I'm Alice Thompson. And I'm Rachel Sylvester. And we're talking to exceptional people who've overcome trauma or adversity to achieve great success. Our guest today is a chef who rose to fame after winning the Great British Bake Off. Nadia Hussein was immediately hailed as a role model for modern Britain, a young hijab-wearing Muslim who grew up one of six children in a working-class Bangladeshi community in Luton and had an arranged marriage at the age of 20. She has millions of fans called Nadiators and has presented her own television shows, published several books and baked the Queen's 90th birthday cake. But like many of us, she has struggled with insecurity all her life which may be why her rousing speech at the end of Bake Off struck such a chord with viewers. She said, I'm never going to put boundaries on myself ever again. I'm never going to say I can't do it. I'm never going to say maybe. I'm never going to say I don't think I can. I can and I will. Nadia Hussein, thank you very much for joining us on Past Imperfect. We wanted to know whether you still felt that same sense of confidence that came across so powerfully at the end of Bake Off, or do you feel that the boundaries are starting to creep up again now that we've had COVID and lockdowns? Um, I think when you read that back, I do find my, it feels really weird that that was ever, I mean, that was five and a half, nearly five and a half years ago. So I can only equate it to a situation like, you know, when you have a child and that rush of emotions that you have when you have that child and you hold them in your arms. And I know it seems like such a dramatic comparison to make, but everything that you feel in that moment, when I'm shouting at that same 14 year old and saying, just listen to me just once, I don't feel that rush of emotion at that time. So, you know, 
it's just in that moment, I remember just being completely dumbfounded and I was completely petrified at the same time. And and those words that came out of my mouth were a mixture of emotions and feelings and sentiment that I had gathered up over 10 weeks because for me doing the biggest baking show in the country was never about a career. It was never about any sort of, there was no forecast, no plan. It was simply baking. And I only went on Bake Off because I have panic disorder and I have PTSD and I I struggle massively with my mental health. And so I only did the show because it was the last resort for me. I had to do something that didn't involve the children. It didn't involve my husband. It just had to be something that I had to do by myself. So now, of course, five years later, of course, as somebody who suffers every single day, and I find myself constantly checking myself and finding ways to manage my anxiety, of course, those boundaries creep up, especially in an industry like the one I'm working in now. So I I do have to go back sometimes and remind myself of what she said. Um, Mm. Sometimes I don't believe my own words. So sometimes I do have to look back at what I said and remind myself that that came from me and and that came from somewhere and and that's in there somewhere, even though it feels like it's hidden sometimes. You said you changed a lot since then. How do you think you have changed? I mean, I think just my surroundings have changed. You know, my children are much older uh, when, you know, they were all under 10 when, when, when I won Bake Off and now I've got a 14-year-old, a 13-year-old and a 10-year-old. And the less the boys need me, the more my little girl needs me. It's really weird. So the dynamic at home has changed massively because, you know, my husband works from home. The kids are, of course, at home now, but when they were at school, you know, just kind of delegating and making sure that we're running a household where we are as present as possible, because that's, it's tough when you're really busy. And, and, you know, I, up until now, I call myself a stay at home mom, even now, because it felt like I was doing, I was still stay at home mom, but I was also trying to do this job that didn't have a cutoff time, didn't have a pension, didn't have, you know, none of that. It was just no holiday, no paid holiday, no sick, just constant. And it just genuinely this last year has made me realize how busy I've been and how much work I've had. And so I've just found myself chasing my tail, I suppose, over the last five years occasionally. And you once told your children that they should get their elbows out. What do you mean by that? So that's something that I say to myself quite often. Working within the food industry, within publication, um, media, that's something that I've had to often tell myself because as a British Bangladeshi Muslim woman, for me personally, when I when I kind of walked into that industry, there was no space for me. It didn't feel like there was ever space for me. It wasn't, and and it just, it felt quite isolating. And so I used to have to tell myself, and I still do even today, when I feel like I don't fit in or I feel like I stick out or I feel like there is no place for someone like me, I have to tell myself elbows out. And, and it's something that I've kind of, it's a mantra that I keep telling myself, keep repeating to myself, because I have to believe that by having my elbows out, I'm creating space for myself. Metaphorically, of course, but if you physically think about that, the action of sticking out your elbows, you are creating space. You are making yourself bigger. You are making yourself seen. And I think for me, that was really, that's something that I've constantly told myself. And going forward through life, there are situations that my kids will face and I'm not shy about that. And I don't, I try really hard to give them some balance because I don't want them to go into the world thinking the world is a horrible place. I don't want I don't want them to think that the world is racist and nasty and mean all the time and 
And I would rather arm my children with the tools to be able to navigate through all of that with confidence rather than trying to find those tools themselves. Because that's something as second generation British children, they will still face those issues because, you know, they are brown Muslim men and brown Muslim women and they will they will face certain difficulties. And so I tell them and they do even now at such a young age do feel like they don't always fit in, whether that's at parties, at school, at clubs, you name it, wherever it is, there's always that kind of sense of I don't fit in. So I tell my kids elbows out because if you don't create space for you, you won't create space for others. And that's kind of the thing that I tell my kids when they're feeling like they don't fit in, because that's the reality. They will go into a world where they don't fit in, but just because they fit in doesn't mean they don't need to be there. And you're so tiny yourself that you actually had to stand on tiptoes to reach the spoons and bowls in the bake-off tent. Do you think people still have a false stereotype about what a small young woman in a headscarf might be like or might want to achieve? Um, I think so often I think I've, I've almost kind of fed into that stereotype because I think growing up within the culture that I did, you know, the, the, we are, I suppose, in some senses, voiceless, you know, you, you know, there was a hierarchy and everybody has their jobs and everybody has a place. And, and I only speak for myself because I'm sure there are many people within my culture who grew up very differently to me, but, you know, growing up in the community that I did and around the women and the families that I did, it was all very similar. There was no breaking barriers. There was nobody doing anything outside of the norm. There was nobody doing anything different. There was a set of rules everybody followed and everybody seemed to follow suit. Everybody kind of, you grew up, you, you went to high school, you, you, some people went to college, others didn't, there was no further education. You would often women get married, men would go on and get jobs and careers and, you know, women would stay at home and look after the children and I think for such a long time there was I felt like that was all I could ever achieve not that being a mother was ever like being a mother is one of the best things I've ever done so I never ever I I never put a down on that but for me I always kind of aspired to do more and be more and I think being five foot one, teeny tiny in, in, in lots of situations that I used to think that I'm not supposed to have an opinion and I'm not supposed to. And that is, that's kind of natural for me growing up in the community that I did. That was, you know, my mom didn't have an opinion, you know, they just kind of, they just carried on. They just carried on through their lives, through their jobs, through their roles. And I just kind of like, I was slightly mouthy. And I was a little bit, I was a little bit, I was a little bit gobby and I would kind of answer back to my dad and and I'd, I wouldn't disrespect him, but I would kind of question things. And my dad would just say, I do not have your answers, please. I don't have your answers. And I suppose from such a young age, because nobody gave me the answers, I went looking for them. So whether that was at lunchtime with a sandwich in my lap, I would sit through the library and get my answers because that's the only place I could get them. And Google wasn't, you know, like I couldn't Mm. just go on the internet. So I would spend lots of many, many hours in the library getting my answers um, because they were answers that my parents couldn't give me. But, But the thing is, you know, there's only so much, there's only so much you can get from books you know, you have to actually live and with the people around you. And and my curiosity sometimes I think got the better of me. So I think there's this image that a five foot one Bangladeshi girl, that she, I'm, I'm going to be really quiet. And unfortunately for 
many it that's not the case I just I mean I'm not argumentative but I I don't if I want to know something I want to know and I I want to I want to talk about it till I'm blue in the face and sometimes I think it's easier sometimes I find it's much easier especially during lockdown it's like little wins little wins especially with teenagers in the house I'm like I will give you as many answers as you possibly want but sometimes I just let them win (laughs) (laughs) we wanted to take you back to your childhood There was no working oven when you were growing up in Luton. Can you describe what your home was like and what your first baking experiences were like? I remember watching Delia quite a lot, especially her Christmas specials. I loved her Christmas specials. Not that I'd ever had a turkey, but I really enjoyed watching her Christmas specials. But to me, Delia was like a fairy tale. She was like a unicorn because... I'd never, I mean, she had this beautiful house with kitchen, with a beautiful kitchen island and she had an oven in the wall. And so for me, that was an, like, that was an oven if it was in the wall like Delia. And I imagined that outside of my world, that's how everybody lived. And my world was a terraced house at the end of a railway track uh, where every 20 minutes a train would go. So you'd kind of hold, you'd like, you don't want to be at the back of the house when the train is going. So, <laughs> I, and our bathroom was at the back of the house. So I would I would wait for the train to go and it would rumble. It was r- such a terrifying rumble because we were literally, I think, uh, maybe 30 feet from the train tracks. <laughs> so we backed off onto the train, our garden backed off onto the train track. So I would wait for the the track to rumble and then I would go to the loo and then I would go and then I, I know I had 20 minute gap in which to go to the bathroom have a shower whatever it was I needed to do I needed to get in get out mm-hmm. um so me for me that the oven in the house wasn't the same as Delia so I never knew that the one that we had in our house was an oven as well so never ever baked my mum never baked she used it for storage so she'd put all her frying pans and bits <laughs> and bobs in there never used it never turned it on you know like it it was so never turned on that the knob had like greased itself shut you know like you couldn't move it anymore because of the grease so did you cook so with I, your mum at all no mm-hmm. never never my mum never let us in the kitchen <laughs> She hated us being. What did you eat then? Did she? So was she just making things on top of the stove? Yeah. So she would. We our, our cooking is all stovetop. It's all stovetop, um, and it was all kind of curries. And my mum, even to this day, cooks eight curries every day, seven or eight curries every few days, and even during lockdown. I'm like, who is eating this stuff? <laughs> and 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 you know, she will make little doorstop deliveries to people when she can. But she, um, yeah. So even now, like, mum will cook. It's all stovetop, never the oven. So mum never let us in the kitchen because she, it was very much. It wasn't for her. The way I love cooking and I love being in the kitchen. It for her, it was just a thing. She needed to cook. She needed to feed her kids. Need to feed her family. She was in. She cleaned up and she left. That was it. We weren't allowed to go in and experiment or muck around in the kitchen. And the one time she said, I could make an omelette, I made a, me and my brother decided that we were going to get in there and we were going to make a 22 egg (laughs) omelette. And I'm just going to say like omelettes expand. (laughs) And there was this big kind of expanding 22 egg omelette. And my mom was horrified, I mean, honestly horrified. And that's the reason why she never let us in, but... I only started baking when I was in high school, first couple of years of high school when we had food studies. And that was when I started baking, but only at school. I never baked at home. 
Um, I only really started baking when I had my own house and lived with my husband. So, and that was not till I was 21. And then your father, I think, was furious when you were born because you were the third girl. Did you feel that you wished you'd been a boy or you should have been a boy? Um, I, it was, I always have this, I've had this conversation with my dad many, many times. And it's one that comes up all the time. And I remember I, only very recently I was talking to my mum and we were talking about it. And she said, oh, I remember when you were born. I think it was somewhere because my birthday is in December. So something about my birth came up and we were talking about it. And my mum said, oh, we were in floods of tears when you were born. I was like, nice, mum. <laughs> still hurts. Still hurts just a little bit. Um, but yeah, my dad. So I, I'm one of six and my dad was petrified. He was so scared to ring his father-in-law and tell him that I was born. And the word for granddaughter and grandson is so close in our language that my granddad kept hearing grandson and my dad's like, no, it's a grand, it's a granddaughter. I'm so sorry. It's a granddaughter. And it's quite apologetic and really, really upset because my dad said, I don't mind that. I have, he always says, I'd never minded that I had a girl, but of course it would have been nice to have a boy just to get everybody off my back. But I wanted, I did want to have a boy. And they were, I have to say, I think sometimes I think it makes for really uncomfortable conversation in, in when I talk to other people outside of my own culture but sad as it is that is such a massive reality growing up within our community that boys are sought after because it's a mentality that comes from growing up in a village because in a village when you have sons these sons are going to grow up and they're going to take on your work they're going to you know they we we we're, we're from a family of farmers so the men will take on the business they will take on the farming they will take on the rice fields the buffaloes all of the kind of hard labor whereas the girls will eventually get married and go off so now men women they all work the same so it makes no difference here but I think that mentality stuck which is it, it, it's you would think that all these years later decades later that that's something that we would shake off and I think through time we will shake that off and we will shake that mentality off but for now I certainly for me growing up in that family that was a big deal for my family it's like you've got to have a boy you've got to have a boy and the truth is we can work just as hard as boys and, and do the same as boy, if boys, if not better, if not better. Did you feel your mother was a very powerful role model or were you almost trying to be different to her? Did you want to break out of that stereotype? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I didn't see myself where she was. I didn't look at her and think, oh, I'd, I'd love to be like, I didn't. I just didn't. It was tough watching her because she, you know, she worked hard, you know, she worked like I remember we went through years of, you know, homework. So she would do work from home. So she was a seamstress for a long time and she would make tons and tons of shirts for very well-known companies uh, for so little money, so pennies, pennies. And, you know, my mum would wrap Christmas cards and birthday cards um, and we'd get really excited when thousands of these cards would come and we'd be like, oh, wow, look at that design. And then when you're helping your mum after 10,000 cards later, you're like, this design is not that fun anymore. <laughs> um, you know, my mum worked really hard and they had so little and I didn't, I didn't look at her and think, oh, that's the life I want. I wanted to go to university. I wanted to have a career. I wanted to make loads of money and I wanted to be secure. And I didn't want to be afraid of um, not being able to pay my bills. And I wanted that security. And I feel like that was so opposite to everything that I grew up with and, 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 and everyone around me, everyone had that kind of, everybody was kind of month to month, wage to wage. And I just didn't want to have loads of children and feel like 
I resented them or feel like I was worn out and I just yeah I didn't see that life for myself and so I did want to go to university and I did want to do something different. Then when you were five you went on holiday to Bangladesh and what were your first Mm -hmm. impressions of that and it must have been so different from Luton both visually and culturally. It was a massive assault on my sense. I'm like, it, because we didn't go on holidays as such. Like we didn't, we only ever went to Bangladesh. Well, if we went on holiday, it was always back home as, as my parents like to call it. So we always went to Bangladesh and you realize how neat the lines are in England and how <laughs> ordered how things are. In, everything is. In England. Yeah. I mean, it was a massive shock. And then we, I remember the first thing when we got off the plane was the heat that hit me straight away. And I remember my dad always kind of going on. And I think now, I mean, as an adult now with children, I understand now why that was important to him then. Um, but he just said, you've got to see how we live in Bangladesh. You've got to see how people live outside of the UK. And I think that's a massive lesson for me with my kids growing up, because we've taken them to Bangladesh and they've, you know, I think my little girl was just, I think my little girl was just a little bit older than what I was when I first went to Bangladesh. So I remember her just being in floods of tears. And I was, I prepared myself for that because I remember what I was like at five, but you walk out and the poverty just smacks you in the face, like nothing you've ever felt before. The stench, the sound of poverty is just unreal, overwhelming. And I remember at five being absolutely petrified with my head stuck in my uncle's very sweaty armpit. I just remember feeling completely frightened and it gave me no comfort that I was there with my mum or that I was there with my dad or my family. It was just, it was, it, you, you feel so completely alone because when you look at the poverty, the poverty isn't, it's just so raw mm-hmm. that it's like nothing you've ever seen. You know, we're talking, you know, crowds of children, no limbs, no eyes, holding you, pulling you, begging you for money. It's just horrendous it was horrendous it was it was it was something that I remembered but I it never put me off going to Bangladesh because my dad always kind of said you've got to go to Bangladesh and you've got to see what this is all about and and truth is you don't really see it you only see it when you walk out of the airport and then that's it then you go into the safety of your village and that's you don't see it anymore that's it you know you don't really see it because you get into the comfort of your village and and it's a it's a wonderful beautiful country and we're very lucky to live where we do because it's very green it's not spoilt you know we don't have gas so everybody cooks on fire so it's very very unspoilt and very beautiful and a lot of it is just the village itself is entirely my granddad so everybody that lives in it is we're all related so it's great there was one very traumatic incident for you personally when you went as a little girl, wasn't there, when you were abused by an older relative. Yes. Can you just tell us what happened and how how you reacted at such a young age? For me at five, I didn't, you know, I did not know what was happening. I didn't, I didn't know what that was. So to suffer that kind of abuse at that age, you don't, I don't think, I think it just stays there. And I think that's what happened with me. I think, um, I think the memory stayed with me and I think it's something that I knew that had happened to me and it just stayed somewhere filed in the back of my memories. And I remember being in my science class in biology in year eight or year seven, I think it was, and we were having a class. It was sex education. I was in all girls school, so nobody had to be kicked out. And, and I remember 
I remember the science teacher kind of going through the detail and it was so, that was it. Literally in that moment, I was like, oh my goodness, that's what happened mm. to me. And that, I'll, I, and, and back in the day when we used to have those big, very heavy wooden um, science tables with the taps in the middle, um, I remember just leaning over and vomiting into, into that little sink which god knows how they unplugged oh, that but i vomited into that and then my science teacher who's the most amazing science teacher i'll never forget her she just just a wonderful teacher um good teacher stick with you um and she just took me away and she said are you okay is everything okay and um she's the first person i confided in about that and she just uh, she said, I think you should talk to your friends. I think it would help to talk to your friends about it. And, um, and I never did. And I never did. I just kind of carried on. Um, and I think that was my first ever real kind of awakening as to, I suppose that was my real awakening as to how bad the world can be. And it was your uncle who came in and saved you really, wasn't it? What, what did he say? Did he just pick you up and take you out of the situation? Yeah, he just picked me up and he took me out of the situation and he was just, I remember him being very angry and shouting, but then telling me, I'm not shouting at you. I'm not shouting at you and telling me that, you know, it's okay. I'm not having a go at you. And I remember just um, hugging him really, really tight and just like really like wrapping my legs around him and holding him tight. Um, and uh, he walked, he carried me around for ages and ages. I remember just talking to me and then he said do you want to go climb that mango tree and I said yeah and then he's teaching me how to climb a mango tree and I don't remember you're far I was five mm-hmm. I don't you know I was very easily distracted and I remember just and then he took me um he took me to the shop around the corner and then he bought me a little a little sweet and then we came back and 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 I'll, I'll forever be grateful for that because he knew in that moment what to do he didn't just save me from the situation he he did what he you would with any five-year-old you distracted them and you and you and you made them feel okay and I'll forever be grateful to to, to my uncle for that because I don't think he realized what he did for me mm. um because he came just in the nick of time so he you know in, in he saved my life um and so I'll, I'll always be grateful to him for that but I was five years old so that you know, to me, that was just something. It was just a memory for a very long time until I was seven or eight. And then I realized what it was. And that's when it really became, for me, that's when those feelings of anxiety were very different from that point on. You're listening to Past Imperfect with Rachel Sylvester, Alice Thompson, and our guest this week, the Bake Off star, Nadia Hussein. There'll be more from us after this. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Are you ready for truly hydrated skin? Meet Hyaluronic Body Serum, a breakthrough in body care from Osea. It's clinically proven to instantly increase hydration by 161%. Their lightweight, fast-absorbing serum delivers 24 hours of nonstop hydration for silky, smooth skin without the sticky afterfeel. Osea's latest innovation combines the magic of their best-selling Hyaluronic Sea Serum with a new formula that's good for the whole body and five types of hyaluronic acid to target every layer of the skin. Osea is a women-founded, women-led brand that's been crafting seaweed-powered products for nearly 30 years. The best part? Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code SUMMER. Welcome back to Past Imperfect. Please be advised that in this episode, there are descriptive discussions about suicide, racism, and sexual abuse. Welcome back to Past Imperfect with Rachel Sylvester, Alice Thompson, and our guest this week, the chef and broadcaster, Nadia Hussein. Nadia, we wanted to ask you what your school life was like. Did you have lots of friends and do you remember it as mainly a happy time or was it quite traumatising being one of the you know, smallest children probably in the school? No, I mean, you know what? School was, a, I loved being at school. School was wonderful. I re, I went to an all-girls school and I just had a really good group of friends. I didn't have lots. I wasn't like the popular kid. I wasn't sporty because there are, these groups still exist even now. I know with kids in high school and my son always says, mom, you would not cope in high school now. You should see what it's like. He said, it's a battlefield. I was like, wow. <laughs> um, the, or genuinely, because like, if you don't play sports, then you're kind of banded in one group. If you are not like the ultra good looking one, then you're in a different group. Or if you're not super popular, then you're in a different group. And my kids are the kids that don't play sports, like chess. And, you know, they like, they like to go to the um, gardening club. So, you know, my kids are very much, I suppose, uh, they, they're very much like me actually in that sense they sound uh, great. I <laughs> yeah they are they are really good kids they're great kids and they just have a fantastic sense of humor just really <laughs> smart really witty and just like, honestly they're just so cool and um and I would be friends with them if I was 15 <laughs> I would 
high school and college were just some of the best years of my life. Absolutely loved it. And it gave me independence. Education gave me independence because I got to manage what I did. I wasn't just sat there doing nothing. When I was doing something, it was because I was doing, putting something in for me. And I enjoyed that. And it was in some ways the most selfish thing I could do because everything else I did was for everyone else. We come from a big family, you know, and when I say family, our families don't work nuclear. We, we don't do nuclear families. My family was my dad, his brother, his cousins, their kids, his other cousins, their kids, my mom's cousins, their kids. Our family never consisted of just us eight. It was everybody else. So where Monday to Friday, we had, we it was open door. It was never locked. Cousins would walk in and out. Uncles would walk in and out. They would come, they would stop. They would be, the house was always full, always full. Um, weekends, my dad would say, everybody come around to my house for the weekend. So my poor mom would have to then cook for like 50 people. <laughs> but, but all the women would pile into the kitchen and they would cook together. And my mom loved that. Although it was hard work, they all helped each other. Um, and they, they cooked and they cleaned and they gossiped and they had a great time. And I loved all of that but not when I was doing my GCSEs. I was like, I can't do this. Where am I supposed to sit? So I would take the ironing board and I would take it to my sister's room and I would prop up the ironing board and I would use the ironing board as my desk and I would get on with some work and I would use the ironing board as my desk to, to get on with some schoolwork. And your extended family must have given you an incredible sense of security. Were you ever bullied at all or was it always easy when you were young? Yes, bullying was something that was very much part and parcel of my growing up and it just became for a long time I thought I could get rid of it or I could fix it and um I could you know people say you should go and tell whenever something like this happens you should go and tell a teacher well I'm going to be honest with you teachers some of the teachers at the school where I was were completely useless uh, and I look back now and if that was my five-year-old or my 10-year-old or my 11-year-old saying this boy is flushing my head down the toilet I'd be on that you know, mm-hmm. teachers would be all over, should be all over that. But um, when they say just ignore them and they'll go away, I have never heard that. Is the, if ever I was gonna, if anyone asked me what's the worst advice you've ever got, is that? Yeah, a lot of it was name. There was a lot of name calling because I think I was, I the schools that I went to were predominantly so it was majority Pakistani people, and then there were pockets of Bangladeshis, and you might get a couple of other people. There they, they were no other, very few races within the school. I think. In high school, there were maybe two English girls. And in primary school, I'd never seen a white face ever. Right. So it's very much majority Bangladeshi Pakistanis, all kind of who live within sort of the everybody knows everybody. And so as if it wasn't bad enough that I had really dark, dark skin, I also had uh, really big curly hair cut like a boy. I also then decided I wasn't going to wear a dress. And so I decided I was going to wear trousers. And so, yes, I was bullied for various reasons. Uh, mostly, I think I found mostly it was because of, of the color of my skin. Uh, it started off with name calling when I was much younger. Same set of kids. Um, and it was a lot of name calling. Uh, and, and they got more and more foul and more and more abusive. And then sort of tail end of primary school, it got mu- it got physical where they were flushing my head down the toilet. They were holding my hands down and smashing them in the hinges of the doors. Um, they were uh, throwing chairs at me. Yeah, so it got quite physical. And have you ever seen the bullies again? No, I haven't. I did see them. I remember as a teenager, I saw them a couple of times uh, as as a teenager. 
and I have never inquired about them. I don't know where they are and I don't care. And I don't mm. like, I find that the bullying has taken over such a big part of my life and um, affected me so much mentally with, with, with my PTSD that I can't really give them much more headspace because they've taken so much of it anyway. And I don't think about what it would be like to see them anymore. I don't think about, I used to think what it would feel like to see them and tell them how they affected my life. And God forbid their parents. I don't know if they are, but I, I, I've, maybe they've changed. Maybe they haven't. I don't think too, I don't like to spend too much of my time thinking about mm. that, but I, I, I say it doesn't affect me day to day, but even to this day, when I'm having my nails done, I look at my nail and the ones that they smashed in. So eight of my fingers were smashed in several times um, and I would go from growing my nails back and then, you know, they'd go blue and then they drop off and they'd grow back. And then that happened many times with the same eight fingers, every finger but my thumb. And, and even now I kind of look and they've grown back really differently to the way they, they look completely normal. They just, just look, I know that they've grown back slightly different and only I would know that. So it's one of those things that it doesn't affect me every single day, but it's a memory that I can't really erase because every time I have my nails done or if I'm clipping my nails, I look at them and, and I'm always, I'll kind of put, run my fingers over them and remember uh, what happened. And like, even now I struggle with um, cleaning toilets. I just can't get near them. I'd right. really struggle. And that's not an excuse to get my husband to do the toilets. <laughs> I and I think you're, Two of your siblings were very sick as well, weren't they? So your parents, in a way, were quite, they had quite a lot of their emotional energy taken up with that. Did you feel that you quite isolated at home too then? I, I was so lucky to have my brothers and sisters because there's this warmth with having them around. Being one of six, you're never lonely. You're mm. never lonely. Whether you speak about your feelings or not, you are never lonely. There's always somebody to fight with, to laugh with, to joke with, to watch telly with, um, to have a bath with. It's good fun. Like it's really good fun growing up in a big family. Um, but you're right. I, I, I grew up with um, a, a brother and a sister who are really sick, very poorly. Um, and so, they spent months upon months, year after year in hospital. So much of my parents' energy was spent on just keeping them safe and making sure that they had all their energy for them. But because of that, we had to learn perspective quite early because do you go to your pet when, when your sister is being told she's going to have a life-saving operation and there's a 50-50 chance that she's either going to make it or she's not. And that those are the chances. Like, it could be either or. Do you then go and tell your mom, mom, I'm being bullied? So yes, of course. Now, as a kid, of course, your problem is still a problem. I know that now as a grown up, and I would never, ever expect my kids to understand perspective. Their problem is their problem. And if they're upset or sad about it, they need to speak to me about it. And I think at such a young age, I just felt like I had to learn perspective. We all did. We had to learn perspective very quickly because there's you being bullied and there's your sister who could die. Mm. So it made sense not to say anything because they didn't need to hear it. And then when you were 10, you heard the word suicide for the first time. Can you remember yes. what you thought when you heard it? I didn't know what it was. Actually, so I didn't hear the word. I watched it on a movie. So I watched oh, it. Gosh. So I watched it on a movie and... You know, so I think one. Of, I, had, I had a lot of older cousins who would come by. I had lots of older cousins who'd come by and watch movies and things, and we'd just be there in the room. 
I'm so aware of that now because like you think kids don't soak up that information, but they do, you know, if they're in the room, then they, even if they're not watching it and not directly paying attention, if that is happening in the room, they will soak that up and it will sit there somewhere in their head. And I remember watching it and I was quite, I think at 11, I was quite, I was struggling quite a lot because I was being really bullied. I was being bullied every single day, every single day I was being punched or kicked or thrown around every single day, chunks of my hair being pulled out. So it got quite bad. It got really, really bad. Um, and so I was really struggling and I remember watching this, not watching it, it was just in the background. I remember thinking, oh, what is that? And then I understood the concept of death and the fact that you can control it. And that's when I kind of thought, oh, so that means that I don't have to be bullied if I'm not here. And that's all it was. And at 11, it was simply a case of not being here. It wasn't a case of, I want to die because I didn't know what death was. Mm. I just, for me, it was just, if I'm not here, I can't be bullied. And that's all it was. So did you act on it? What happened? Well, I, well, in this movie that I'd watched, somebody had taken these pills. And so the only pills I've ever seen my dad take were paracetamol. So I took a couple up and I figured that that'll do the job. And, you know, I'm nine or 10 and I hadn't even had a, I'd never taken a pill in my life. So I didn't know how to, how it worked and how I swallow it. And I kind of mimicked my mum's throwing her head back and thought, let me see if I can make this work. And I think I ended up like chewing a couple and, and left with that bitter taste in my mouth. And, and then I ran, I, I, I was drinking so much water. I ran out of water and that's what stopped me. And I think I had, I think I'd taken about five or six maybe at the time. Uh, and then that was it. And then I was like, oh, I ran out of water and my bladder was really full. And I was like, oh, this is hard work. Mm. Um, this whole trying to get out of bullying. Um, so I mean, if I think back to myself as a 10 year old, I didn't really understand what that meant. I didn't, I hadn't experienced death. I didn't know what dying meant. I didn't know that dying meant not your heart stopping. I didn't know dying meant that you no longer exist. Dying, didn't know dying meant that you put that person in the ground. I didn't know that dying meant that you no longer saw the people that you love. I didn't know any of that. I had never experienced death in my life. All I knew was that you didn't have to be here anymore. And you were interrupted by discovering that your mother was pregnant. That must have been a joyous moment. Oh, so I'd gone downstairs and I thought, right, I'll go get myself some more water. I just went downstairs. Um, and then my mum and my dad were shouting and he was really excited. And he said, oh, um, your mum's going to have another baby. And I kind of thought to myself, oh, well, this baby. And my mum and dad said, oh, well, baby will be born in August. And were really excited and, and he was the everybody had stopped having lots of babies and so it was really nice that we were going to have this baby all to ourselves and um I remember thinking at the time I said I remember thinking in my head oh mum I better well you know what I'll stick around for the baby and oh. then once the baby's here and I've seen the baby that's when I'll do it so for me I was I was about to like in my head I thought right I'll endure a little bit more bullying and then I'll see this baby because I kind of want to see this baby and I bet he's going to be really cute. And, uh, and, and that's what I said to myself. I made a pact to myself. I said, let the baby come. And then once I've seen the baby, once I've seen the baby, then I'll do it. And I never did. 
So how old were you when you started thinking about getting married? And did you did that feel like another kind of way of escaping? Or were you worried that was going to be a trap because it involved a boy? I didn't want to get married, not for, because I, I, I mean, I set, I had set university in my sights. For me, it was about, I, I needed to go to university. So marriage wasn't a thing that I wanted to do. It wasn't something I, I thought maybe I might want to do it somewhere in the future, but it wasn't definitely wasn't as early as early 20s it was perhaps 30s maybe later so I didn't really want to get married not really Mm. um but then when I got into university my parents were absolutely adamant that I wasn't to go to university because I was the first girl in our family to make it to university and my mom just said nope you are not going to university if you do you can't come back You, you can't come home and I think at the time I was really angry with her I'm really annoyed and I think I knew ultimately in that decision that I only had one path that anyone ever saw for me, and that was marriage. And I didn't want to give in to that. But at the time, I remember being really angry. But at the time at 18, if your mom says, go to university or you can't come home, like, I can't, you know, I'm an 18 year old with no money. You know, I need to have a home. And when did they start talking to you about the idea of an arranged marriage? It was always an option. That's something that always kind of flies around the house. It's always an option. The idea of an arranged marriage is something you hear about from very, from a really small age. Everybody around us was having arranged marriages. It was one of those things that I kind of, I was quite happy to do because I had no experience talking to boys. So I didn't think that I was ever going to find anyone myself. And so, yeah, it was one of those things. My parents, my father-in-law and my dad knew each other really well. And they just kind of, they spoke to one another and they kind of said, oh, I have this son and I have this daughter. And it kind of worked out like that. And in the end, we ended up talking to each other for about six months. And then I said to my dad, I quite like him. And dad said, oh, okay, (laughs) let's see see him. And so the day we met for the first time uh, was the day we got engaged. And do you want your own children to have arranged marriages? Or if they came to you and said, could you help us with your ma- our marriage? What would you say? Oh, no. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, I don't want them. Well, I, I think if they wanted help, of course, I'd be more than happy to help. But I mean, how do you go about it? Like how, what, talk about responsibility. Like how, <laughs> I mean, what if I pick the complete wrong part? I just, I couldn't take on the, I don't know why people think that is acceptable to take on that massive responsibility. I couldn't take on the responsibility of finding the perfect person. But if they asked me, absolutely, I'd take great joy. I'm still an Asian mum, you know, this is still in there. Like I, I like to think I'm not like my mum, but I can kind of, I can imagine the excitement of going through my book and thinking, oh, who do I know that has a daughter or a son? I can imagine... <laughs> I can imagine myself in 20 years doing exactly that. So there is a little bit of my mom and dad and my my culture in me. I think there's a bit of me that thinks, oh, that'd be quite exciting. Um, but no, I mean, I don't want the pressure. When they are of an age, when they want to get married, I want to be in a sports car driving through Europe and traveling the world. <laughs> I don't want to be, I don't want to be, I do not want to be finding husbands and wives for people. No, thank you. So did baking become a way of bonding your family together? they were growing up Uh, we bake all the time we bake all the time it's it's our kitchen is on the go all the time there is no it doesn't ever stop so um baking cooking being in the kitchen in general is something that keeps us 
together and there's nothing that brings you together than when you've cooked something delicious and stuck it in the middle of the table and everybody's like oh you know like that's just it's really special although it is wearing thin slightly now in lockdown because there's literally the same five places every single night it's getting a little bit boring I'm really missing having people around Uh, we've resorted to having teddies at the table (laughs) (laughs) and how did you find the confidence to get to enter Bake Off I mean was it your husband who suggested it or who told you you should try I remember him saying, oh, I think you could do Bake Off. And I remember saying, no, I don't, that's ridiculous. And I just kind of like shut him down. And he kept, I think, I remember him pestering me and saying, well, I think you could do it. I think you could do it. And I was like, no, 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 no. And he secretly did the application. And then he said, look, just do it, go on for me, humor me, humor me. And so I did it. And um, yeah, and and I definitely got the last laugh. He's the one who's been at home with the kids for the last five years, really. So, yeah, so. (laughs) And you've had the most astonishing career in the last few years. But you've also had some terrible racist attacks, um, particularly on Twitter. Do you think that Britain's become more or less tolerant since you were a child back at primary school? The big difference between when I was a child or a teenager growing up and now is that we have access to everything now. So if there was racism when I was younger, there was because my granddad was left for dead uh, many, many a time when he was you know, beaten up in racist attacks. So racism has existed for forever in England um and for anyone who says it hasn't they haven't experienced it and they don't know they 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 haven't experienced it that's why they think it doesn't exist and just because you haven't experienced something or haven't felt it doesn't mean it doesn't exist we've been talking about racism since I could speak since I could talk since I could see so it's something that's been a part of my life for as long as I can remember but I think now these days it's so much more exposed because of social media because we can get everything at the tap of a button so um, it's definitely more to see I think there's more there for people to see and to talk about and to share and to experience so it's just as racist as it ever was it's just that we're seeing more of it now Um, there's I hope that one day that will change but the truth is, do we exist if we're not represented? And 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 racism and that kind of unconscious bias exists in every industry, everywhere you look, everywhere you turn, it exists. And and you know, and and we've been asking ourselves that question just very recently: is that if you don't see yourself, do you exist? If mm. you are not represented, if you're not represented, are you there? And and you know, I look at television, I look at publishing, I look at all the industries that I work in. I, I I would never have dreamt of working in these industries because I never saw myself in them. And so now that I'm in them, I see the problem with them is that there is nobody else. And so there is a big problem and, and, and racism quietly happens everywhere. Mm. And looking back at yourself when you were sitting on bed at the age of 10 with the pills in your hand, is there something that you wish you'd known then that you now know that you could have said to yourself? Do you know what? I, I get asked questions like that. It's like, what would you have told your younger self? And if you had known, the truth is, we are never going to have the ability to know what's going to happen in the future. So, yes, if I look back at, if I look at 10-year-old me, if I could have 10-year-old me, I would just hold her. That's all I would do. I would have nothing to say to her, but hold her and know that she is loved and that she's valued and that she is, she's there for a reason. That's what I would do. But we don't have the ability. We don't have superpowers. We don't have the ability to know what's going to happen in the future. So there's nothing that I could tell her. But in order for her to be who she is now, she had to go through that. 
And I'm a firm believer in that now. And there's times when I've felt anger and resentment towards some of the things that have happened in my life, but they had to happen for me to be where I am today. And what are the next boundaries that you want to knock down? Or is it just a cake that you want to make? <laughs> Sometimes it's just cake. Can I just say? <laughs> What's your favourite recipe then that's coming up that we haven't actually heard of yet? Oh, gosh, I don't know. I haven't done anything very recently, but hopefully there'll be lots of recipes, which I'm not allowed to talk about. Um, but um, yeah, I'm always mucking around the kitchen. Cake for me is like, it's always going to be, it's always going to be cake. But there are so many boundaries, so many walls that need breaking. And like, I can't do that on my own. I cannot do it on my own. And at the moment, my biggest battle is just existing, you know, just being here, doing the job that I'm doing. Because I'm forever being told that I should be grateful for the opportunity and that I'm so lucky that I've been able to do this. And actually, what we should be saying to each other is, you got this, you're meant to be doing this. That's what we're supposed to be saying to each other, not you should be grateful for the opportunity. Um, of course, I'm always going to be grateful for every opportunity, but we have to start believing that we are good at what we do. And I think those are the boundaries that we need to break. And as soon as we start believing that we can be and that we can exist and that we can do the things that our parents didn't do, that our grandparents didn't do, didn't do that that's only then will we actually start to break those boundaries and those walls. And I say we because I am so much more than me. We, there are so many of us out there, no matter what religion, race, creed, color, you name it. There are people like me out there who don't fit in, who don't see themselves, who are not represented, who are striving, who are struggling. And I am so lucky that I get to do this job, but I'm not going to go. I'm not just going to fade away. I'm not just going to go away. And I don't do this job just because I like writing cookbooks or I like working in television. I do it because I have to. I, I do it because we have to be represented. That is a big burden to bear. I know I, I suffer the, the pain of that weight every day, but it's one that I have to bear. I have no choice. I have to bear it because my granddad did not get beaten up by skinhead racists for me to give up today. Naji Hussain, thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you. You've been listening to Past Imperfect with Rachel Sylvester, Alice Thompson and our guest this week, Naji Hussain. This is a Wireless Studios production produced by Ben Mitchell. To make sure you never miss an episode, you can subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts and listen back on the Times Radio app. We'll be back with another Past Imperfect next week. Until next time, thanks for listening. If you've been affected by any of the issues raised in this episode or others in the series, please go to our podcast page or website where there are links to charities and organisations who are there to help. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odour control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. 
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.